Hello, my dear brothers and sisters around the world. Uh, we have just been looking at a way or the way we need to uh, look into our scriptures and how we need to interpret them for the Muslim mind, how we need to look at honesty, deal with the Quranic text as well, um, for, and how we need to ask questions of their own theology um, of the Quran and, and just to have an honest uh, dealings and, and we need to honestly grapple with this book. Now, um, what I'm going to do now is just begin to go into a bit of biblical theology. And the reason I'm going to do this is because as for many Christians around the world, we, we may have done our homework. We may have done uh, our Bible schools. I went through four years of Bible school. I learned my theologies. I felt confident about the Bible. I, I felt that this was true. I knew it to be true. I had evidences that could point towards it. But when I began to actually share my faith with Muslims when I went back to London and when I traveled through the Muslim world, I suddenly found myself struggling to know how to actually communicate and articulate the deep theologies that I knew to be true, but I didn't know how to communicate it to the unbelieving mind. I didn't know how to communicate it to the atheistic mind. And then for my work and the focus of, of, of the ministry that I do, I especially didn't know how to communicate it to the Muslim mind. And um, you will have noticed in the previous session that we did, we were beginning to focus, and we're going to focus more on this as well, on how we interpret our own scriptures and be confident in knowing how to deal with our own scriptures and then take it to, um, to others who don't believe. Um, and the, the cameraman in the room, um, as we were talking in the break, he was just saying how um, it's not until you actually bring uh, or you confront darkness with light. And of course, when we say darkness, we're meaning the Quranic idea. And when we say light, we're meaning the biblical idea. And when when you confront darkness with light, suddenly you learn how to contrast your ideas that come from the light. You, you contrast your ideas with the darkness, and then you learn how to articulate your faith. But that can sometimes take years to know how to do that, years to know how to be grounded on the Bible, how to interpret the Bible, and then how to communicate it to the Muslim mind, how to honestly grapple with their text, and then how to ask probing questions of their text especially those of us who are in the West. Now, I think those who come from Africa, I, I grew up in Africa, uh, those who live in Asia, possibly in, in Arabia, are often better at knowing how to ask probing questions of another religion or someone else who has a different position on something. But I think those of us in the West, we tend to be get quite good at defending, but we're not very good at polemicizing or asking probing questions of someone else's position. And it's a weakness of the Western church, which obviously and possibly has influenced other parts of the church worldwide as well. So as Christians, remember when we said in previous sessions, we are not only apologists, defenders of the Christian faith, we are also polemicists, challengers of false ideologies, uh, ideologies that come from darkness, which is this Quran here. So what we're going to do is we're going to also just unpack a few uh, or, or address a few pitfalls that Christians fall into uh, when they talk about their faith with Muslims. And this is especially important when it comes to uh, issues on men and women. One of the important things for us to remember is that when a Muslim challenges our faith, they tend to be better at polemicizing against our religion. You will often find that they will go to an Old Testament uh, story. So they'll pick out an Old Testament story that 
to the, to, the, to the mind who has not read the Old Testament and doesn't know what the whole of the Old Testament actually teaches and doesn't know how the in, New Testament responds and, and builds on the Old Testament, you'll read a story in the Old Testament and it's quite frightening what it says. It could be a, a story of violence. It can be a story uh, about women that seems a bit troubling. Uh, there's some case laws in the Old Testament. Um, a case law is an if law, i.e. if this happens, this is a way to deal with it. So it's not a divine edict from heaven what you must do, but if this happens, here's how to deal with it. We'll address that um, in much later on in another session. So a Muslim will, will dive into an Old Testament uh, story or they'll dive into uh, a, a part of the Mosaic law, the law that was given for Moses in his time. And you'll find that the Christian spends their hours trying to defend the Mosaic law. And what the Christian has forgotten to do is that this Bible has been revealed over, uh, over a few thousand years by many, many different authors inspired by the Holy Spirit, that it isn't, it isn't just a book that gives direct edicts from heaven, but it's a book that is grappling uh, with history, um, is talking about what happened in history. It gives a context of, of what was happening in that time and how God went into very difficult and very sinful scenarios and brought about redemption and a solution and how he's dealing with the people of old. But it's not these stories also were exposing real human behavior. A behavior of sin. Uh, often my Muslim friends will point to the incest that some of the prophets did. Or uh, see, the, all, the, all the prophets did polygamy. They'll point to, to polygamy as if it's an example of how we are to live today. Um, what Muslims fail to understand, and they're not dealing with our text honestly, they're looking at a verse on polygamy. So a man, Abraham, had more than one wife. Jacob had um, two wives, and there was all the pain in that. And what they are doing is then they are, they, they are saying, they're imposing an Islamic way of interpretation as if it's a divine edict from heaven, not realizing that these men were sinners. And of course, a Muslim struggles with that because in, they believe, although it's not necessarily that clear in the Quran, they believe that no prophet sins. So they're imposing that onto the Bible. And so, of course, if Abraham took on more than one woman, or if, if Jacob took on more than one woman, and, and if, if Solomon took on more than one woman, who is also a, a Quranic I, a man, um, they say, well, then they didn't sin. So therefore, it means the Bible teaches that men can have more than one wife. And that's how they interpret our scriptures. They've completely misinterpreted our scriptures. They've misconstrued history. They've not understood that the stories of the Old Testament, they're not always teaching us how we are to live. They are sometimes teaching us how not to live. Sometimes God will bring in an Old Testament idea, our story for us to learn from it, i.e. the people of old had to learn the hard way. They sinned over and over and over again. And because the Bible actually interprets history honestly, it doesn't romanticize what happened in history. It doesn't take the prophets and pretend they're perfect. It looks at the prophets and all of the people of the Old Testament as if they, and they are normal human beings. And then it reports the stories as they happened. In fact, that shows that it's historically reliable because it doesn't spin the Old Testament stories to make it look positive. It shows some gritty, difficult stories, especially when it comes to man and woman, when it comes to how women were treated. And even some of the Mosaic law is dealing with very sinful scenarios. Hence, God had to bring in radical solutions. But Muslims don't understand that this is a report, an accurate report of normal behavior of humankind teaching us how to live and how not to live. 
but for the Quran, whilst they do have a couple of stories in here that actually show you how not to live, and you can certainly point that out to Muslims, but this is often filled with divine edicts, or they believe is divine, we don't, but they believe is divine edicts from heaven, telling them how to live, and it allows them to sin from a biblical perspective. So it's very important to point out to Muslim friends that this book talks about behavioral patterns of man and woman, and that they must not impose an Islamic idea of something that they think is acceptable um, onto our text. This may teach polygamy. This do, as a way that God says is allowed in Surah 4, 3 and so on. This does not teach polygamy in a way that God allows for us to live today. We'll address that in a little bit more detail in a minute. Something else to point out to a Muslim friend. When they look at our Bible and they look at someone, something to do with woman or to do with man in the Bible, with marriage, for example, they'll often go to the Old Testament, as we've said. They forget and they don't realize what the law of God was all about. And if you look at Islamic law, it's introduced here, but it's really un unpacked and, and extended upon when, it, uh, when, it, when you come to the Islamic law, the Sharia. And you have to look at the Sharia to really know how men and women are to live today. The saints of Muhammad and all the traditions really uh, give a lot more detail and a lot more law of how they are to live today. So a Muslim looks at Islamic law, and of course, not every Muslim accepts Islamic law. You, are, you do have a Muslim movement in the Islamic world today now, which are, they, they are Quran-only Muslims. They're rejecting some of the Islamic law. They tend to be your more progressive Muslims. But the majority of Muslims have to accept Islamic law. And that's certainly been the tradition for 1400 years. And what they do is they look at Islamic law on, on, on the detailed laws of man and woman, which we'll look at in a little bit of detail in a minute. And they impose that law on how they look at our book. So they find a law in the Old Testament and say, see, this is how you Christians should be living today. And these are the latest polemics that are coming out of the Muslim world. World because they can't find much in the New Testament to challenge when it comes to men and women. They can find a lot more, they think, in the Old Testament. So they look at our law, not realizing what our law is all about. The Old Testament law was for Moses, and God was using the Old Testament law to point to something. Now you can weave in the gospel, because the Old Testament law is to point into our, our, the point that we are sinful, the law points out that we are sinful. The New Testament, the book of Romans talks about this. We are sinful people and there needs to be a solution to our sin. We are unclean people. And in the Old Testament, you have cleanliness laws. You have laws where they had to clean, ceremonial laws. So if there was uh, any illness or there was any, uh, any uh, uh, bodily fluids that had, had come out of your body uh, and you were ill or even a cold, you had to cleanse yourself before you go to the temple to worship. And those kinds of cleanliness laws, the ceremonial laws, the food laws, have been incorporated but changed and actually corrupted and have found their way into the Quran, which came six to seven hundred, actually later, seven to eight hundred years after Muhammad, after the Lord Jesus Christ. So you have these cleanliness laws that point to our sin and the need for a savior. The law points to the need for a savior. The law points to a need for a perfect person who could keep the law and who gave the law to actually come and be the one who fulfilled the law as the New Testament talks about. 
what Muslims have done as they compiled this Quran, which took about 200, maybe more years to put together. And still, by the way, the latest uh, information research that we're doing, um, the team back in London and other groups around the world are finding that this book, the Quran, there is still no uh, constant text that they refer to. This book, which was canonized in 1924, this Quran, they still do not know where the t 1924 Quran came from. So even today, the Arabic Qurans are different. We we have found about 20, over 20 Qurans that we're studying in the UK. There's a group on Australia and groups and scholars in America who are investigating the differences between the Arabic Qurans. Nevertheless, the Quran, which apparently Muslims believe was given to Muhammad, history tells us it took a few hundred years to put together. And the latest research shows us that there is no Quranic text that's exactly alike. Um, uh, between the, the different Quranic texts that we found, Islam, Arabic Quranic texts. And what Muslims look at this book and they've incorporated this law saying that it's for today, not understanding what the Old Testament law was all about, not understanding what the Old Testament law was pointing towards, but they've incorporated the laws. They've taken out the point that the law shows that you're sinful. They've taken out the need for the Savior, and they just have empty laws. So this book and the Islamic law, the fiqh or the, the sharia that came later, just produces empty laws that every Muslim has to follow, but it has no theolo theological meaning. So those cleanliness laws or the ceremonial laws that the Old Testament has, has been borrowed but twisted and corrupted and changed. It's been put into the Quran and then other Islamic literature, and it has forgotten the most important point of the law of God that the law pointed to the need for the Savior. So you weave the gospel in as you do a comparison between the Old and New Testament. But this becomes especially important when you talk about women's issues and men's issues. When you read the Hadith, the sayings of Muhammad, I have an abbreviated version at home because it's all nine volumes if you read the whole lot. And I, we're reading through the nine volumes as well in our library um, back in the UK. But I have an abbreviated version and this is what you find in many of the mosques, in the bookshops in the mosques in the, in the UK. And I bought this abbreviated version of Sahih Bukhari because I wanted to read what, 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 what they thought was important because it's a, it's a compacted form of, of the hadith. Do you know so much of that, that abbreviated version of, of the hadith has laws on women's issues? It's women's issue of a woman's issue. It's all about her being unclean. It's all about her how she becomes clean. It's all about how um, she has all these rules and rituals that she has to do. She has to do certain types of washing to cleanse herself. Men do as well, but it's more so for the woman. And I thought, wow, Islam has a preoccupation, one, the law. Two, it doesn't even know what the law is all about, but it forces the man and the woman to cleanse themselves. So, for example, when a man goes into a mosque, he has to wash. When a woman goes into a mosque, they have to wash. When a woman has a menstruation, she's not allowed to go to the mosque because she's considered unclean. That's why a man won't shake my hand in case I make him unclean. So what it's done, it's made woman unclean. And we saw in Surah 5, 6, it says, if you touch a woman, it makes you unclean. But she is unclean if she is unceremonially clean, which the Old Testament talks about. Um, it, and she can't go to the mosque when she has a menstruation. She can't um, go to the mosque when she's feeding her baby or uh, when, uh, when she is ill. Nor can the man, of course, when he's ill as well. When a man and woman have been intimate with one another and um, they, uh, there's been an emission of bodily fluids, uh, they, can't, they have, to, have to get up and wash because they're unclean before God. So in the most intimate place of marriage, a man and woman becomes unclean. They have borrowed laws and they have not understood it. 
They've, re they've ignored the whole point of the law. Why am I saying this? Because when you look at the role of woman in Islam, when you look at the role of men, when you look at how man and woman is looked upon in this book and in, in the whole, all of the theologies of Islam, you see that it, it, first of all, makes it more difficult for women to just have easy access into God's presence. Um, but it also has these laws that impose upon the Muslim woman and for a lesser extent, the Muslim man today. And yet it has no meaning behind it. And you need to help Muslims understand that. Muslims will say, well, it's my deen. It's my Islamic practice. It's how I bring honor to God. But really, it's empty. You still have to push back. Why do you as a woman, when you have your menstruation, why can you not pray directly to God? There is um, a lady, she, a, a senior missionary back in the United Kingdom, and um, she tells a story. And she says that she had a, a Muslim friend, a, a, a Muslim woman that she went to visit. And this Muslim woman had baby after baby after baby, as many Muslim women do, which means that it can be year after year after year that a Muslim woman cannot enter the presence of God. I cannot pray directly to God. She can, you cannot do your five salat unless you've cleansed. You cannot go to the mosque unless you've cleansed. But if you are feeding your baby or if you um, have menstruation uh, and so on, or if your baby is, um, uh, is sick on you and so on, you are unclean. And this Muslim woman, as um, this lady went in to visit her, this Muslim woman was so frustrated and she said, uh, she said, I cannot ever pray. I'm not allowed to pray to Allah. Her God is Allah. I'm not allowed to pray to Allah because I'm so unclean all the time. I've had this baby and that baby and I'm washing them and I, they, they, they are sick on me. I have to wash again and they're feeding from me and I, I'm, I'm unclean before Allah and I cannot pray. And she says, I'm, this is, I'm struggling. I'm tired. I need to pray. I need energy from God. I need God to help me. And this uh, Muslim uh, Christian lady responded to her and said, aren't you aware that you can enter the presence of God? Because the, the Lord Jesus Christ has made a way for you to just walk into the presence of God. Because when Jesus died on the cross, what happened as the New Testament teach? He ripped the curtain in two from top to bottom. He ripped it in two. And oh, God ripped it in two as Jesus died on that cross. Because, and it was in the tabernacle and, the, and now people could enter into the tabernacle or into the temple, enter into the temple where only the Holy of Holies was, where only, where God dwelt. It was this picture, it's the best picture language you can think of and share it with a Muslim where you have the Holy of Holies and the, the curtain divided, the Holy of Holies with the outer courts. And then God, as Jesus died, ripped that in two and, and people entered the Holy of we can now enter the Holy of Holies. We don't have the ceremonial law anymore because Jesus has done his work on the cross. So you can use the laws of wudu and cleanliness, the laws where Muslims have to wash that they have implemented for today. You can show them how they're outdated. They don't fit for today. And you can show them how Jesus has made a way for us to enter the Holy of Holies because of what he has done. So help them understand that the Old Testament law is in its place because you can almost guarantee every time that a Muslim uh, tries to challenge our Bible, they'll go to the Old Testament law as if it's something that is applied for today, misunderstanding what the Old Testament law was all about, especially when it comes to women, especially when it comes to marriage and the, the relationship between man and woman and then God, um, God and humans and God and women.
Another important point to remember, and this is very important when you're talking with Muslims, is to help them understand the relationship between the New Testament and Old. So, for example, Galatians 4, 21 to 31 says this, and actually the whole chapter, but here's a little verse that says, if we are led by the Spirit, we are no longer under law. So that dear Muslim lady who was struggling because she had feeding her baby, she could not go and pray to her God, and I don't want her to pray to a God. I want her to pray to our God um, because her God is not, does not even exist. He is, there is no God but the biblical God. But nevertheless, she wanted to pray to, to what she thought was God. But we read these verses to them. If we are led by this spirit, we are not under the law. You help them understand that. We are not under the law anymore. Muhammad has put women back up under the law to the point when Surah 434, a husband rules over her. She has to be devoutly obedient and he can beat her until she obeys him. So that's the kind of law that Allah has imposed on a woman and has commanded men to do. Something else that's very important to remember when Muslims polemicize against women in Christianity what they would do is they would go back to, uh, to uh, examples of history. They'll go back to some of our early church fathers. They'll go back to some Catholic or um, some, some writers um, all through the centuries of Christianity that sometimes had very pro-male, anti-female ideas. Sometimes they had pro-slavery ideas, unfortunately. So they'll pick an example from our history who they think are our exegetes. We know that the exegetes of Islam are very important to Muslims. They go to the tafsir to even be able to understand the Quran. So they think that our, our, our church fathers or um, Christian leaders through the centuries who can sometimes say things about women that most of us would not sign up to today because we, we understand the scripture uh, and we have the full scripture, but also we, um, we don't interpret it in, in the way that they often did. And those leaders of the church many years ago, uh, hundreds of years ago, were influenced by their culture, which tended to be misogynistic, so pro-male, anti-female. So Muslims will go to examples from them as they see what your early church leaders said. Or they'll go to the Apocrypha. So they'll find stories, Jewish stories. Some of the Jewish stories, including a Jewish prayer, where there is a Jewish prayer, and Muslims love to quote this, where it says a, a Jewish man in the mornings will pray, and, he's, and he thanks God that God didn't make him a woman. He's thanksgiving to God that God didn't make him a woman. Muslims love to quote this prayer. And you'll find all over um, Islamic stories these quotes from the Apocrypha, and they'll say it's the Bible. So when you go online on the internet, a Muslim will make a quote from what they say it's from the Bible. So, for example, the Bible has a book called Ecclesiastes. That's how we say it in English. Well, you go online and you'll find a quote from Ecclesiasticus. Um, and, of course, the person who isn't watching or reading carefully would generally think the quote from Ecclesiasticus is actually the biblical book, Ecclesiastes. You have to be very uh, uh, careful when you're reading is, uh, Islamic polemics against, against the Bible and against women because uh, they are quoting from apocryphal literature, Jewish literature. They are not quoting from the Bible. So you need to be very, very careful about these things. And folks, point this out to a Muslim. Help Muslims see that they're, first of all, imposing a non-biblical story or text or idea about woman onto our text. Help Muslims to understand that. Because so often Christians fall into the trap of spending hours defending um, extra-biblical literature, quotes from the early church leaders, 
and then a misquote from the Old Testament, or hours um, defending the Old Testament law, you do not need to defend the Old Testament law. You need to explain it. You need to help them understand why the Old Testament law was given and why certain laws are given on women and help them understand uh, uh, what it in its context and what it points to and weave the gospel in and out, in, right through all that. So let me give you a few examples. In the Old Testament, um, I'll give you three examples of polygamy. I, I can't tell you how many times Muslim missionaries have come to me or just my dear Muslim friends in the home and say to me, Betty, the Old Testament teaches polygamy. Why do you reject polygamy? The Old Testament has all the prophets. They did polygamy. And they have completely misunderstood what the Old Testament is doing when it talks about the polygamous marriages. I'll unpack this a little bit more in the next session, but let me just give you three examples. In the Bible, it has the example of Rachel and Leah in Genesis 29. It has the example of Hannah and Penina in 1 Samuel. It has the example of Sarah and her slave girl <coughs> and her maiden, or her maiden girl called Hagar. When it's the slave girl, uh, don't impose modern-day slavery as we see slavery today. It's a different um, situation. It's more like a maid or a servant. So you have Sarah and you have Hagar in Genesis 16 and Galatians 5. That's probably one of the best examples to use. Use Sarah and her and Hagar because Sarah and Hagar is very important to the Muslim. And also, um, or Hagar is very important to Muslim because it's the mother of Ishmael. Um, but also go to the New Testament and uh, when that talks about um, uh, Sarah and Hagar. Uh, Rachel and Leah is a very, very painful story. It's a story of, um, of, of Jacob where he fell in love with Rachel and he wanted Rachel and he had to work off to, to, to um, be able to marry them to get, pay the bride price. Leah was the older sister and so uh, God, uh, not God, uh, uh, Jacob's father-in-law, uh, Leah and Rachel's father gave um, Leah first to Jacob. Then he had to work off another seven years to pay for the woman he really wanted. So Rachel was the loved wife, Leah was not. And there's a lot of agony and pain in that, in that marriage. Tension between the sisters and agony between um, in that polygamous marriage. You need to point out the agony and the pain that the polygamous marriages showed. You have Hannah and Penina. Penina was having children and Han Hannah was the favored wife. She was the loved wife. So the man was not able to love both wives equally. Penina had many wives and Hannah goes to the temple and she's crying out to God to give her a child because she's barren. Now God hears her prayer and he does answer it. And Hannah gives her child back to God to serve in the temple um, and, and he became a, a prophet of God because she'd promised that, that she would do that when God answered her prayer. But there's pain. Look at the domestic situation. We look at the theology and we look at how she gave her child back to God to serve him. Look at the pain in the marriage. In that polygamous marriage, there was deep pain. So you need to unpack that with a Muslim. Every time there's a polygamous marriage in, this, in the Bible, it shows pain, or almost every time. And the first polygamist is in Genesis 4 um, with Lamech. Lamech was an evil man. That, he's the first poly, uh, polygamist. And so, I think I said polemicist. Nevertheless, polygamist. He's the first polygamist. And he was, um, un he was a, a, an evil man, he, uh, he was a wicked man, and he's the first one that took on two wives. There may have been others before him, but in the Bible, he's the first one. So it's a sinful man that does polygamy. And a few verses just before that, it's introduced the whole marriage formula that we are to follow today. And one man, one woman.
And then take them to Sarah and to Hagar and show how Sarah, Sarah um, uh, was uh, um, uh, Hagar and Sarah, the tension between Hagar and Sarah. Sarah threw her out um, away from the family. She couldn't, because she, she, there was so much jealousy and so much anger uh, between Sarah and Hagar, all to do because one woman had children, another did not. And so show the sinful scenarios and the broken relationships between what the Bible is, is and why the Bible is even reporting these stories. Help the Muslim interpret our scriptures rightly. And brothers and sisters, you interpret our scriptures rightly. You don't, don't look at the Old Testament and think it's teaching you to do polygamy. Look at the Old Testament and realize the pain that is showing because of polygamy. And then point that out to your Muslim friend.